Welcome to the Truth in This Art podcast, a storytelling series that documents the vibrancy and development of arts and culture. And now, here's your host and cultural curator, Rob Lee. Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I am interviewing a fine artist, curator, educator, originally from Denver, Colorado, living in Washington, D.C. Her work is largely focused on mixed-media portraiture of American life, including themes of motherhood and culture. Please welcome Zudeka and Zenga Terrell. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. See, I, I actually worked on it. I prepped that multiple times before. I, I saw. I heard. I, like, I, you, I don't know if you saw because they can't see my face, but I was like, oh, pop it. Oh, pop it. Oh, pop it. <laughs> so, you know, it's just it's just energy. It's like it's like meeting relatives sometimes. You know how it is? Like meeting cousins. Um, <laughs> so for the fine folks who are undipped, uninitiated, um, give me the vital, vital stats. I, I read that you started to paint in acrylic around eight years old. Can you share a little bit more about your background? Well, no, I was an artist forever. And so, you know, when I was when I was eight, I was I was making earrings for the kids at my school, taking their lunch money. Um, <laughs> I've been a hustler <laughs> since day one. Um, but I just evolved in my process. So, you know, back then I was working with, you know, I had my little crayons and colored pencils and I was hooking up their little jewelry that way. Um, I was always really good with charcoal. So I was always like the art class star. I could do, you know, I could draw a lot of realism and things like that. Um, but I actually got my start doing spoken word poetry. So, you know, when I was probably 15, 16, there was like a big boom in the world with spoken word. There was like this uh, spoken word renaissance and I've always been a writer. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I started touring. I started writing my poems and performing everywhere. I was on slam teams and I was doing my thing and I was touring and um, I wanted to come out with a book of my poetry. And I, um, I first I had a friend, Keith Parker, he did a cover for me for one of my books and it was fire. But then my mom was like, yo, you paint. Cause I was secretly like paint on the side and I'm going to be real. I had no idea what I was doing. I went and got some, uh, water soluble oils. Cause I was like, everybody who's a great painter is an oil painter. And I uh, and I got some regular oils and I was raw dog painting with the oils with no thinner. <laughs> just raw dog in the oil <laughs> on mm. the canvas, which ooh, I calculate like how much money I probably wasted raw dog and oils on the canvas. Just <laughs> terrible. But I had these like little pieces that I was secretly doing on the side. And so she was like, you know, why don't you put your work on one of your covers? And so. Uh, the next two books I had, I put my work on the cover, but nobody knew. I didn't tell anybody it was my work. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really that confident in it. And so um, when I went back home, I started a Black Arts Festival in Aurora, Colorado. And the first day of the festival, one of my vendors didn't show up. And so it's a gap in the layout. I don't know if you've ever done like special events where it's market and festival, but you got, you have everybody scheduled where they're supposed to be. The last thing you want is a gap in the layout. And it was a gap in the middle of the main <laughs> field of the layout. So my mom said, run home, go get your art and just put it in this space so that it's a continuous flow. Yes. 
And so that was the first time I ever like showed art. And, you know, I put pieces up and people were like, oh, I like this. And honestly, it was terrible. Like I had, you know, it was very hit or miss back then. Like I would have one piece that I would be like, this is good enough for me to continue trying to like work on this. And then the rest, it was just a mess. Um, But it was a very positive experience for me. And it led to me, um, I ended up joining this art collective in Denver called the Sankofa Art Collective. And um, I will never forget, she's blowing up now, Don Williams boy. And she was like one of the people that was that was in the the the. Uh, can you get into Sankofa process? She was like, you know, you're not very good right now, but I think that's who have the potential to be. And so, you know, they let me in and just being around all those artists really inspired me and really, really grew me to start to try to figure out art. So um, I painted in oils until I got to DC and then I Mm -hmm. met my husband. And um, at that time I was painting live a lot and he's an acrylic painter And he was like, you know, homie, (laughs) it's really kind of ridiculous for you to be like trying to paint an oil painting in two hours on stage (laughs) at an event. Like, that's just not how oil paint works. You should try acrylic. And, you know, so I, I started like dabbling in his supplies and it dries faster. (laughs) (laughs) that's what I needed (laughs) less chemicals you know it's safer around the kids and things like that and so that's how that's how I started with acrylics that's great thank you thank you for sharing that um it's it's always interesting to see when someone has a, a different medium that they are working in different creative pursuit that they're working in. And then it's just like, well, this is how I got here though. So like for me, before delving into like audio, have you like, I was a writer writing, writing terrible raps when I was in high school (laughs) and then kind of poetry and, um, and things like that. But, you know, I realized recently or rediscovered recently that I always was kind of that person that could, present and be in front of a thing and kind of craft and, and, and uh, direct a story. Um, so being a master's of ceremony multiple times and kind of not, not the person that wants to get up there and say, Hey brothers, dig that. N- none of that. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I used to have a lot of hair too. So it was just the bad aesthetic, but, um, but yeah, just kind of seeing how, where a person was at and what they were doing and how that, how they're, where they're at now. So with, so tell me, tell me about uh, Shigiri and about your process from conception to creation when it comes to your practice now? So um, collage has always been something that I kind of did on the side. And um, it was, they were always kind of two separate things for me of like, oh, I'm painting. And then like every now and again, I'll cut something out of a magazine and do a collage. Um, So as I, like, I love collage. I love the assemblage of different, uh, entities and images and, and bringing them together. I, I love how it comes across. And I'm also very into like quilt work. I learned how to quilt when I was very little. My mom is a, is a seamstress. And so oh. she taught me how to quilt very, very little. So like just the idea of like the assemblage of small pieces, like making something bigger has always really intrigued me. Um, so I got introduced. I can't even remember who introduced me. 
and I don't even think it was introduced. I think one day I was like, I'm going to make a portrait and I'm going to tear the pieces because I couldn't find my scissors. And you know how sometimes... <laughs> <laughs> so frustrated. Where are my scissors? Right? <laughs> I was like, I spent like, I wasted like an hour of studio time. And you know, like sidebar, I have a bunch of small kids. So an hour of studio time looking for some scissors is like, devastating <laughs> so i just got to a point where i was like i can't find scissors i'm gonna just tear the pieces and so you know i did this and it was a portrait and it just came out fabulous and it was a lot softer than uh, my painted work my painted work at that time i was doing a lot of um kind of reminiscent of stained glass like really hard angled really thick uh, black lines within the portraiture yeah. um and so you know i started to like evolve this style of like tearing the paper and then in researching it i found out that that's a thing is and it's called shigiri and it's, it's a japanese form of doing collage work and so i was like oh like this is cool how like things kind of can evolve naturally for you and then you can find out the importance of how what what it is to other cultures and how other cultures utilize it yeah. so um for a long time a lot of my work and i still do a lot of work like i'm working on an installation piece right now that's um heavily based in tearing the paper and what i love about the torn paper is just like the softness in the edges. It's mm. it, it allows for a blending that I think is really special and is really organic. I like that. I, I like how, see, this this shows you where, where your greatness is at, right? Where it's like, yeah, I was just looking for some scissors, and then you just stumbled into this ancient Japanese method. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. Look at you out here. You got to just open up, right? And let whoever got to come through you come through you. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just like, look, where am I scissors? Oh, look, I discovered this. This is what I do now. <laughs> so what do what do people in terms of the listeners, what do people need to know about you and about how you think, how you create and, uh, and how you understand like the world around you and in what ways would that help them appreciate your art? Uh, okay. So this is an open-ended question and I can ramble. So please feel free to I'll like put you on the clock then <laughs> yo, interrupt me <laughs> and jump in. Um, I think that for me, one of the most important things about my work is, is I consider myself kind of an anthropologist in how I'm assessing culture and how I'm expressing culture, because I think that we're in a really interesting era where uh, the concept of Blackness has been allowed to expand beyond just a conversation of like race and into a conversation about what is our culture. And I think that um, in my generation, we were probably one of the last generations to be kind of raised on the idea that there is no Black culture, but there's like this pan-Africanism. And I think there's a rejection of that happening right now where it's like, actually, I grew up in a very rich culture that is a very specific thing to my experience in America and how I engage my ancestors and thinking about where I came from. And so, you know, that's the, one of the most important aspects of my work is, is wanting to communicate cultural experiences in a way that's accessible to everybody. So we can all see the ways that like we connect and the ways that we, we relate, but I'm also like, 
really fascinated by how dominant Black culture is in American culture of like, all of this is us. <laughs> like they want to say our words. They want to wear our clothes. They want our hairstyles. They love our art. Like, and so really like thinking about like how the possibility of our artwork to redefine what is America? America's always been seen as this melting pot of whiteness that then like has these pockets of blackness. But like, what if America is actually a melting pot of blackness that has pockets of whiteness? Because like a lot of these things that, that are happening now or that people do now come from us. Um, so I'm really interested in reflecting that in my work. I am not an artist who does trauma-based black work. I don't have, I think I have one painting that's like a trauma-based Black art painting, and it's from like 15 years ago. Um, I really want to talk about other stories. Like we didn't all grow up trying to escape poverty and gangs and whatnot. Some of us grew up in like really different environments and really different styles of households. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. You know, my dad was in the Air Force. My mom was a teacher. Um, you know, I grew up around a lot of different types of people, but I grew up in a household that was very entrenched in celebration of Black culture. And that is something that's very special to me. Um, and so, like, though, I think that those are some of, to me, what are the most important things that I want people to get from me. And then I'm going to stop talking and let you. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think that's important. And I, I agree with you, like in, in, in almost everything that you, you said, they're not that I'm disagreeing with anything, but I think that at times there's this subtle erasure of what, and sometimes less, more than subtle erasure of what a black person is and what their contributions are and all of that stuff to, to this country. Um, and there is a approved black narrative and approved black story. And I, I used to do a podcast called unofficially black, um, with, uh, one of my good friends, um, Greg, and we, we just looked at it like, yo, we're into wrestling and anime and things like that. It's like, yo, how are we not black guys? Like, like, you know, like this is not like acceptable, what have you. And, you know, kind of exploring that, we, we it, it eventually devolved into us just saying a bunch of like weird off-color jokes, but still, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's one of those things I, I appreciate you kind of saying that and speaking on what your experience is, because I think every person's experience as a black person in this country is a valid thing, regardless of what it might look like. And I think there are oftentimes there are people that don't really see that, that are in that position to, to say it or have said it. We've gotten this programming of, yeah, well, where do I fit at in this conversation? Why, why is my black voice not as valid as this approved black voice? <clears throat> Absolutely. And yeah. I think that for me, you know, it's funny because <laughs> I have, well, as I watch like this shift in media and this shift on, I like how you called it the quote unquote <laughs> approved black narrative, right? Um, I think that what happens is like a lot of us who don't speak to a certain narrative get caught in this echo chamber outwards where we're assigned these identities of like, you know, like I'm considered a conservative black person. I get called like bed wrench and coon. I don't know if I can say those words. <laughs> no, please oh, do. Sorry. Please do. Those are <laughs> but you know, like I get called those type of things. Like 
all the time. And I just be like, and I'm like, and and it's funny to me because I'm just like, I love black people more than like (laughs) most of the people I know, like everything I do is about black people. And like, you know, we're, and then the whole and the whole tap hotep is the other thing, the other yeah. like derogatory. Oh, you know, y'all are hoteps because you know we unschool our kids yeah. and we had our babies at home. But like you know, like my kids, we we at the house like really submerged in our culture and really yeah. enjoying our culture, and and we're raising our kids to love and enjoy and embrace our culture. And our artwork is reflective of that you know, both me and my husband of like a pride in blackness and like a love in blackness and like just wanting to push back on like, why is there not space for that? Like, why is everything have to always be centered in? It gotta be drama. It it gotta be like, no, there like, there's black folks we having dinner together mm-hmm. all at the table me my husband our children and we got our africa cl- our africa clock on the wall yeah. and we got adinkra symbols and masks hanging up on the wall and we got you know like we we are representing who we are and i think that i just think that it's important to have alternative narratives yeah and and that's one of the things that that this podcast is really about it kind of came out of just having the more holistic and or quote unquote an alternative narrative to how people talk about Baltimore. Baltimore is a city that is the wire. (laughs) Yeah. But Baltimore is a city that's 66% black. And whenever I hear these things, I'm like, no, you're just talking about black people. It's a way to try to wedge that in there because every city has these different issues, you know, some worse than, than what might be seen here, but we will give them the grace to talk about their culture and what they may represent and not do the same thing for here and other cities that tend to have a really high population of black folks and people don't see it. You know, it's, it's really odd to me. And going back to one of the things she said, I thought was really interesting where, uh, you can hear the coon thing. And then you can hear the hotep, which to me feels like they're very opposite things. It's like, how can you be both? <laughs> how? How? <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I've, I've heard things of back in the day. Like I worked in the office and it's like, oh, you're like Colton Banks. I was like, you can eat a dick. <laughs> like, like, or, but, but I, I remember, um, I, I had a job and it was, uh, I had a job, like I'm unemployed. I, I had a job <laughs> where it was like me and um, three of the black dudes. And we were the only black dudes on the team. And we're all in the same area. And we all work in data. But we were moved into the same area. We weren't sitting together initially. And I used to have this theory. And I, it's still there. I think I'm tweaking it. But it's like there's a theory. There's only so many allowable black guys in the office, certain archetypes. And I'm just like, I feel like, which ones are we? You know, that was the, the question I was doing. I was sitting there <laughs> pondering it. And... Uh, um. And I was like, ah, I'll get back to work. I'll explore that later. But when you see it right in front of you, it's just like, oh, this is how y'all look at us. This is oh, no. interesting. Uh, I relate to that so much. Like growing up in Denver, which black person am I? Is like the A1 question when you enter the room. Of like, uh-huh. And I would feel that in class. I would feel that in um, things that I was invited to. And, you know, like. I don't want to date the podcast, but it's February. It's Black History Month. And so like Black History Month is like millionaire month for black people who like perform and do things. And so I would feel that when I would get invited to things too, like, oh, you know, I'm about to make. $30,000 $30,000 in February going to different universities <laughs> doing my Huey P. Newton poem and like, where's my, <laughs> my, my Luther King. 
I mean, look, I, I'll I'll leave that because it, it's it's some things that are really funny. Where like my my boy Greg, uh, I just remember when because Bleed Black Panther came out in February, and I just remember just people showing out. Just how many like fake dashikis were being worn? I was like, look, none of y'all look good in these. And no. and, and Greg is light skin, and the colors were like Golden State Warriors colors. And I was like, <laughs> what are you doing? I was like, excuse me. And I was like, can you get a real one? Like what? Like. Why you're not gonna wear that again, are you? Like, <laughs> uh, look, I'm gonna tell you my Black Panther story. Yeah, I was uh, se- I was pregnant, pregnant with my third child, and I get hella sick when I'm pregnant, like mm. the whole time. It's a terrible time for me, and I get hella fat. Like I can't eat anything, <laughs> and I still seem to just get fat, fat. So I'm mad. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I can't fit nothing. <laughs> Fuck a dashiki and everybody and they dashiki. <laughs> My husband was like, come on, you know, let's go out on a date. And, you know, everybody's going to see Black Panther. We're going to go see Black Panther. So I took my big pregnant angry <laughs> behind out and we went to the Magic Johnson Theater. So it was the blackest experience <laughs> I could possibly have in Maryland. Like everybody black. I stood in line for like 45 minutes with a bunch of folks in dashiki ball gowns and whatnot. And they ran out of popcorn and I sat in there and I was so pregnant and I was, I was like crying. And my husband was like, can you please get yourself together? Like, well, I was just like, you don't have no popcorn. <laughs> and everybody just got on their chicken. He's like, this movie's not even that good. I was so mad. The Shocker. <laughs> but that's, that's what it is. So I, I think, but I think that speaks on like just the response around it and just, just what people wanted in terms of like, yo, like even just based on what the attempt was, black people wanted it because we we need something to kind of look at and say, all right, you know, that's us in the best way. This is this is fictional Africa, but it's Africa. Um, and, and I yeah. couldn't even hate on the art of it. Yeah. You know, like I think that that was probably like the storyline. Uh, mm-hmm. I was annoyed. But the art of it and the Afrofuturism being expressed to such a wide audience, I felt like it was actually one of the first times that the idea of technology was presented from a, a, a Black or an African perspective. And I, to, to me, that was what was important or that was what was revolutionary. And it was like reassuring that as an artist thinking about the message of your art matters like what you're trying to put out it really matters and like are we thinking about you know what is the difference between art that's focused in the past art that's focused on trauma art that's focused on present times and art that's focused on the future or art that is moving into a future of a different way in which we engage the conversation about who we are and what our identities are. It's big. I, I like how in, in, in letting you roll, you're answering like all of my questions. I like, I like that. I like <laughs> I'm that. sorry. No, 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 no. It works because it, it, it comes off even more natural. It's like, yeah, here's the other thing. It's like, it's like you had the questions already. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's see, let's see. Um, 
so I read that you consider your studio practice a cultural to be cultural anthropology with an aim to capture and archive the history of and culture of Black Americans. Why? Why? And I and I think you covered it, but maybe hammer it in. Uh, why were you drawn to that as a subject outside of the obvious? I'm a Black person, but like, why were you drawn <laughs> drawn to that? So you know, I I, I want to start off with saying like when I was a kid, because, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a suburb of Denver. So, you know, it's, it wasn't a bunch of us. There was two black businesses in downtown Denver and that was a Kente Express and Human Bookstore. And every Saturday, my parents would drag us to this building <laughs> where these stores were. And I mean, we would see Phil Valentine lectures and like just and but you know you walk in and it's a mud cloth on the walls and incense is burning and Fela Kuti is playing and upstairs they got all this black art and all this black fabric and so I think that coming into the understanding that my community is a vibe you know like mm-hmm. when I go to people's houses that it's the same thing like I love going to black people's houses because like you come in and it's just like okay what's the vibe you about to set like what <laughs> what music y'all playing what y'all got burning what y'all what's what's going on and so like a lot of it is rooted in finding an appreciation of that and having um you know like since I moved to DC I don't think I've been to a white person's house I think I've been to maybe two white people's houses in the mm-hmm. last like 10 years And then thinking about like when they get to come into my house, like what is the experience that they're having and what's the difference in the experiences and like how we create um, our cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like a lot of my work right now is centered on showing rooms and scenes in rooms. When I first got into that, I started, I was using a a lot of um, African fabric and I started to kind of delve into the history of the fabric because I'm very particular about like, if there's symbols and whatnot in it, I need to understand the symbols. Cause you know, like you could put death and brokenness innocent symbols onto your painting and mess up your whole life. Like I'm into the vibration of that. So I was like, I need to know where these come from. And so as I'm learning the history of how these fabrics that we use that are like these African fabrics, these Ankara fabrics come from a Dutch process. And a lot of um, the the traditional uh, quote unquote African fabrics that we see or that we engage with are actually Dutch um, symbols and like Dutch political messages. And so that became very fascinating to me about the power of textile and the design Mm -hmm. of textile to define a culture, because like uh, the Dutch, as they migrated beyond Africa, didn't continue it because their culture doesn't like colors like that. They didn't. They thought it was too colorful. It's too much stuff together. And so the African cultures evolved it into because they do. We do. We love colors like that. We do. So for me, it made me reconnect then to as a Black American and as somebody who identifies as an American and as a Black American, like I can't trace back unfortunately, my specific ancestor to my, you know, there is no one specific village that I can be from at this point in my life. Um, It made me think about like, how do we as Black Americans design? How do we engage Mm -hmm. textile? How do we engage color? How do we and I and that led me into really learning about like Afro Cobra and how Afro Cobra like 
their uh, writings around how they engage color. Um, Bisa Butler is somebody I've listened to countless talks of hers, talking about her experience at Howard with these teachers from Afro-Cobra and the challenges that they issued to her in dealing with colors. And in comparing the ways that we engage with color and the ways that uh, traditional color blocking has been viewed. And I think that there's something that we do that is different or that is more evolved than the traditional concepts of how colors relate and how colors move and how colors engage together. So all that to say that (laughs) in my work, like as I'm creating, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about like the history and with Pan-Africanism and with the diaspora, how we're connecting these textiles, how I engage in African textile versus like, what is a black American textile? And there really isn't one, you know, like Kente cloth doesn't belong to me or like Ankara fabric actually doesn't belong to me. And so what is a textile design that does belong to me? And, you know, so then I'm looking at the um, quilt patterns that have been developed from, you know, my ancestors who were enslaved and the messaging that they created, like in braids and in the ways that we fashion ourselves and the ways in that we articulate so many more messages and how we assemble our outfit, how we put our hair together. And that's fascinating. And so. I want my work to give those messages. Like, I feel like when you stand in front of one of my pieces, if you're Black, it says something to you, that you get the language, because we're speaking in a language. There's a specific, like, you know, like, this is the room that your mama said that you can't go in. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we all know what that is. We all have somebody in our family that has a room that you can't go in, and there's plastic on all the furniture, and you know, like, the fact that this person is posing here in this room is, like, a moment, because they cannot be in this room. <laughs> or, like, you know, this is my, you know, my mom, my, my husband's mom has a hat room yeah. for all her church hats. And that's where her like her where her makeup and like that's where she does her thing and she gets ready and then she selects her hats and she rotates her hats by season. She has this incredible collection and like the importance of like the church crown. And so just just a painting of a woman with the crown, what that says to us. And it's a specific conversation to us, but then to others, it's a glimpse into Mm -hmm the incredibleness of us. And I think that I really want to continue to contribute to what is Black American culture as a whole. Like, who are we now? I'm five, six generations deep on this land, at least. This is its own thing now. And this is what it looks like. And it it pulls from Africa because, you know, we always nod to to where we're Mm -hmm. from. But it is it's also evolved from just Africa. I like it. I like it. So let's let's wrap up here. Um I, w- I want to um I want to invite you to tell the fine folks where to follow you to see more of your work, your website, all of that good stuff. Feel free to tell the folks where to check you out. So my website is terrellartdc.com. That is T-E-R-R-E-L-L Arts D C 
www.artsandcrafts.com. And if you jump on the website, we are actually a virtual art center and we offer a lot of workshops and a lot of different content and opportunities to learn about art and engage in art. And um, we also do like teacher educator art trainings. So you can come on and and book us and check out some art. Um, And then the best place to follow me, I would say, is on Instagram, which is at Sudeka Z as in Zoo. S-U-D-A-Y-K-A. So there you have it, folks. Um, I want to thank again, Zudega, uh, for coming on to the podcast. Um, yeah, we'll wrap up here. So for uh, Zudega and Zynga Terrell, I am Rob Lee saying that there is art in and around your city. Uh, you just got to look for it. You've been listening to the Truth in This Art podcast, a storytelling series that documents the vibrancy and development of arts and culture, hosted by cultural curator Rob Lee. For more information, visit thetruthinthisart.com.